Hello, uh, my name is Karen Wintemute. I'm an emergency medicine physician and a firearm violence researcher, and you are listening to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Please listen carefully. Carefully. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back. You're listening to another episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast with me, your host, Lawrence Eppard. You can find our podcast and our free email newsletter at connorsforum.org. I hope you're doing well. If you're like me, this is your favorite time of year when the heat finally breaks and the weather starts to feel like fall. I love everything about this time of year. The weather, football, Halloween, Thanksgiving. I can't get enough of it. Well, on today's episode, our guest is Garen Wintemute. He's the director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at the University of California, Davis. He is a renowned expert on gun violence and a pioneer in the field of injury epidemiology and prevention of firearm violence. He's testified before Congress. He served as a consultant for the National Institute of Justice, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, let me take a quick moment to explain how I ended up booking Dr. Wintermute for the show today. So for the longest time, I've wanted to do an episode on gun violence. But to do so, I had to find an expert who could give us a nonpartisan understanding of what the weight of the research evidence says on this topic. And unfortunately, what you find is many people who study gun violence are partisans. And they let their research be biased in ways that privilege either liberal or conservative viewpoints, and therefore it's really flawed. And I've been searching for a long time for somebody not to do that, to give us a truly nonpartisan take on the state of this research. And uh, Garen Wintemute came highly recommended to me by a number of other experts in the field who said, this is the perfect guest for what I'm looking for. And so I'm very excited to bring you this show today. So without further ado... Let's talk to Garen Wintemute about what can be done to reduce gun violence in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Garen. Thanks for having me. So for the longest time, I I keep getting emails from people saying, when are you going to do a gun control episode? When are you going to do a gun violence episode? And believe me, it hasn't been for lack of trying. Um, But it's really hard to figure out who's telling the truth. (laughs) <laughs> because, you know, you, you, you see studies that say, hey, this thing works. And then you, you talk to some researchers that are like, no, that's really politicized. And then you see other studies and they say, you know, this particular law will work. And then somebody else will tell you, no, that's not those findings aren't very robust. So um, can you explain to people, uh, am I telling the truth? Is it hard to figure out what's going on here? Um, it is a politicized topic. It is, I think, harder for some people than others to set their personal opinions aside to to check their priors at the door, if you will. But the other thing that, as we get technical, complicates this is that violence is an interdisciplinary field. So I'm trained as an epidemiologist. Social scientists have different training. And behind those fundamental inductive versus deductive approaches to understanding the world, there are lots of methodological differences, study designs that are considered part of the canon in one discipline are derided in another discipline. So there's legitimate difference of opinion about whether the work is good or not. And then let me make one more point. The other thing that we all struggle with is that there has been for violence, which I view as a health problem, a concerted and largely successful effort to prevent research from being done, period, which means that we all struggle with the absence of the sort of data that we would have if we were dealing with health problems like heart disease or HIV AIDS or cancer. And and I, I agree with you and I understand the backstory, but I want you to lay it out as somebody who's much more intimately familiar with it. How has that played out to stop us from getting good data? Sure. Let let me start with a fundamental point that that motivates my thinking has really motivated my career. 
violence is a health problem. Firearm violence alone is associated with about 45,000 deaths a year in the United States, same number of deaths, roughly speaking, as we have from breast cancer and diabetes. Um, for every person who dies, there are many more who are physically or psychologically disabled. There are, if you will, circles of damage around each event. It passes the duck test. It's a health problem. 35 years ago, as that recognition was growing, the federal government began to support research into violence as they supported research into other health problems. Some of that research threatened political and economic positions. The result of, and we can go into as much detail as you want on this, I lived through it, um, threatened uh, political and economic interests. And a member of Congress who in his own words was the point man for the NRA, led an effort that terminated that federal funding for firearm violence research, effectively speaking, such that for nearly 30 years, there was no federal health funding to speak of for, for firearm violence. It's, it's as if we had said, tell you what, let's just not do health research on breast cancer or diabetes, which kill comparable numbers of people a year. Let's just let those problems evolve. Let's blame the victims. Um, we didn't do that. I, I ask a rhetorical question, but I ask it as a researcher who was prevented from working for a, in, in, to a large extent for, for much of that time. How many people are dead today who would be alive if that research had been allowed to continue? If we had answered 35 years ago, the questions that we are attempting to answer now, if we had been able to turn those answers, as we do for health, other health problems, into effective treatment and, in this case, more, more particularly, prevention, we'll never have the answer to that question. But that's what happened on the ground. So I, I know this sounds like we're belaboring the point a bit here, and maybe this is a little bit too elementary, but uh, maybe I'm just an elementary guy. Uh, but I, I think this point is really important. Why does that money matter so much, right? Like you're a researcher, you got a computer. Why can't you just sit down and do the research? What happens when the money dries up? What, what happens to the research? Why does it play out where the research stops? So this is not an elementary point. It's fundamental. It's why the funding was cut off, to be quite honest. I started doing the kind of research that you can do for no money, um, which means using available data, using simple methods and you can provide simple answers to basic questions, but more critical questions in, have to involve studies of larger numbers of people. They have to involve collecting data, which doesn't happen for free. And the money shot, what shot, what we all really want to know is how do we prevent firearm violence? For me, it's a health problem. This is metaphor or analogy, but, but the point is, if we're going to study prevention measures, we need randomized trials, or we at least need large observational studies of natural experiments, policy changes, et cetera. Randomized trials, which we're conducting one here now, cost money. So it, it boils down to this, that the really important research simply cannot be done for free. Okay, so let's talk about uh, specific policies, and then we'll get back to these larger questions uh, in a moment. But um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, is there some good research on policies that work? And let, let's go through some of the policies. So um, gun control in particular, just general gun control policies. Is there any evidence to suggest that, um, you know, cutting down access or raising ages or, you know, issues around access can reduce violence. I'm going to, I'm going to stay really technical and I'm only going to make reference to what is in my mind, the, the, the strongest research designs out there. A social scientist would have a different list um, just to be fair. Um, so another point by way of introduction, I don't use the term gun control. Uh, it's for a bunch of reasons. This is the United States. Control is what we do with pests and stuff. We just don't like that term. Um, 
I don't know its specific history, but it strikes me as a liberal, coastal liberal sort of term from the 60s or 70s. I just don't use it. I talk about specific policies. So let me give you just one example. Denial of access to a population of people who plausibly and based on the data are at high risk for committing crime with a gun. Those are people who've already been convicted of a violent crime. It is in most of the country, it is simply a myth that you cannot buy a gun if you've been convicted of a violent crime, legally. In most of the country, that crime has to be a felony or it has to involve domestic violence or you can buy all the guns you want. We did a study, not for free, funded by the National Institute of Justice here in California, looking at the question, among people who buy guns legally, are there subsets of people who are at very high risk for committing violent crime later, such that maybe we wanna do something about their access to firearms? And we learned that compared to legal gun owners who had no criminal record at the time of purchase, those who had a prior conviction for a violent misdemeanor were at five times increased risk of a violent crime over, over the next three years, over the next five years, after adjusting for age, race, and sex. So a high-risk group. This was at a time when California allowed such purchases. If they had two or more prior convictions and bought a gun legally, their risk was increased by a factor of 15, 1,500%. In most of the country, those people can still buy guns legally. California changed its policy, not because of the research. They, were, they happened at basically the same, actually the policy change came before we did the project I've just described. But California changed its policy and began prohibiting purchases of firearms for people who'd been convicted of violent misdemeanors for 10 years after those convictions. That's a policy experiment as I think about it. And we evaluated the experiment. I love the metaphor, that, excuse me, Justice Brandeis's metaphor that um, states are democracy's laboratories. This is a laboratory experiment. This, this study was also done not for free with federal funding we did a controlled observational study. Two groups of gun people who wanted to buy guns, large numbers of people in both groups, everybody in both groups had been convicted of one or more violent misdemeanor crimes within 10 years of trying to buy the gun. The comparison group were people who tried to buy a gun in the last two years of the old policy and they got their guns. The, the experimental group, if you will, I, I will keep using the health metaphor. The treatment group were people who tried to buy their guns in the first year of the new policy. Under treatment, they were denied. They did not purchase those firearms. The two groups were almost identical. This was an observational study. It was a randomized trial. But the demographics were balanced as if we had randomized. It was almost almost eerie how similar the two groups of people were, young men, recent violent misdemeanor conviction. Of course, they're young. So we followed these people forward in time at the individual level for three years following their purchase or attempted purchase. And what we found was that the denial of purchase was associated with an, about a 25% decrease in risk of arrest for a violent crime over the three years following the purchase. That's a big effect. If I were as a clinician, if somebody gave me a new drug and said, you'll reduce the incidence of badness with this drug by 25%, I would go sign me up. This is an effective treatment. But again, it's an observational study. It wasn't randomized. But one of the ways you can in help infer causality from an observational study is look at things like specificity of association, which we did, we found that there was no difference whatever between the two groups in their incidence of arrest for nonviolent crime. The effect was specific to the type of crime the law was intended to prevent.
And there were some other things that we did. So to my mind, not a randomized trial, but pretty good evidence that denial of purchase of firearms to that particular high risk group is effective. Should such a study be replicated? Sure, but you need another state to adopt that policy for the, the replication to occur. Uh, so I'll ask you two questions. Um, the first is, well, and, and so I'll ask you three questions. Would the policy then, uh, how it would work in terms of the legislation be background checks, right? Like uh, if, if you fail in this particular area, you don't get access to a gun. Is that the policy? That, that's the policy. That how, right. That's how it works. So two questions. Uh, the first would be, and you can answer them in any order you want. You can go as long as you want with each one. The first question is, um, what's the biggest criticism the study has received? Um, and the second question would be, would it work if, like you said, states are laboratories, right? So would it work if you live next to a state which doesn't have these laws and people can just buy them there and use them in your state, right? So um, first question, biggest criticism. Second question, would it have to be a federal law? So I, I love these questions. They're entirely appropriate. Um, let's, take, let's take them in, in the order in which you asked them. Biggest criticism, not a randomized trial. Right. Um, historical controls. Um, the, one of the strengths of the study, however, is that it's at the individual level. We were able to look at the effect of the treatment on the individual people treated, not on rates of crime in, in a population, which might not have been affected by this because the number of denials is relatively small. Mm -hmm. The effect is on the people denied. That's what we're looking for. Um, undermining um, is the term that we give to, to your second question. Strong policy in a given state undermined by weak policy next door. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a violent misdemeanor and I can't buy a gun in California, um, why don't I just go to Nevada or Arizona? You've set me up for um, something I wanted to talk about uh, that I mentioned earlier. Um, that is absolutely possible. However, if I, a resident of California, go to, of any state, go to another state and try and buy a gun and buy a gun, that's a felony. So now I'm facing prison time if I'm caught. I'll mention as an aside, just because it's a lot of fun, that kind of thing does happen. Um, interstate trafficking is, is a thing in the United States. Here in California, we're well aware that people can drive. It's a, it's a fair distance and over the mountains or through the desert to get to a neighboring state. <clears throat> I used to do observational work at gun shows all over the country. And at shows in Reno, uh, which is for, for listeners who don't have their geography front of mind, Reno is right on the border with California and it's a straight shot down Interstate 80 to, to my town and the Bay Area on the other side of me. You can walk around a gun show in Reno. I've done this. And 30% of the cars are from California. I've counted. I've walked the parking lot. But I'm not the only person doing discrete observation at those gun shows. And if you go to a gun show in Nevada and you buy a bunch of stuff that's illegal in California, and you throw it in a, the trunk of a car with California plates, and you head west on 80, you don't get very far past the border. There is an operation set up, and people know about that operation. So the mere knowledge has been effective, but some people don't, and they get caught. Um, but yes, undermining is a problem. But let me go back to the, if one policy doesn't work, maybe the other one covers that particular hole in the Swiss cheese. I think science, me included, have, uh, scientists, me included, have, have missed a fundamental observation. We've talked about it, but never taken it seriously. Because we've wanted to be rigorous, we have evaluated policies one at a time. Mm -hmm. And I just gave you an example where it works, but it works because we're looking at the individual level, at treated and untreated people. But when you're looking at the population level, looking at rates of crime for a city or a county or a state, when you're trying to compare policies in one state that might have a policy to others that don't, it gets much more difficult because we've recognized, we, we sort of poo-pooed the fact that states that enact one policy tend to enact others mm -hmm. targeting the same behavior, targeting the same outcome. So in retrospect, 
What are we doing trying to disentangle that? So we've started to talk about doing what are called bundle studies, where we look at the potential aggregate effect of a number of policies that are, uh, that are attempting to affect the same outcome. Um, we've done a little bit of that kind of work here. The strongest work has been done by the RAND Corporation, where what they're finding, it's not all published, so I need to speak in general terms, but what they're finding is basically this. And, and the, the first thing I'm going to say is something that they and, and we and others have established, that when many policies are enacted, it really is difficult, if not impossible, to isolate the effects of just one if, mm -hmm. if you're looking at the population level. But what they're finding is that <clears throat> at the population level, at, as they look at the enactment of more and more and more policies, the likelihood of those policies having a beneficial effect increases quite rapidly to a level of statistical near certainty. And the effects are quite large. They are seeing, as we saw in the case I gave you, 20 to 30% reductions attributable to enacting a bundle of policies mm -hmm. with, with a, with a p-value that says, statistically speaking, this is almost a, a lead pipe cinch. This did, there is a causal relationship here. Well, the thing that I like about uh, this, besides the all of the scientific rigor that you've laid out, um, the thing that I like about a policy like this is that this is not radical. Most Americans support such a policy uh, of background, you know, reasonable background checks. So, I mean, except for the political hurdles that you've mentioned, right? Uh, enacting it, you know, if, if the public will resulted in legislation, if there was a direct relationship there, this seems like it would be an easy win. But um, yeah, you've, you've touched on something that I think is, is really important. I don't think this can be overemphasized, to be honest. Um, there's a tendency to, to see gun politics, like, like lots of politics these days, as highly polarized that there's no middle ground. People are either at one extreme or the other. But, but that's another myth. There has been well-designed survey research on this issue, as on others, going back decades now, showing that if you ask people, should every fire, to, to give concrete examples, should every purchase of a firearm be subject to a background check? Um, should there be uh, as, as, and I've mentioned one, should there be some expanded um, ex expansions on the current criteria for denial? Background checks in particular um, receive overwhelming support, not just from the general public, but from firearm owners. Um, and and the, there are people for whom it's advantageous to portray the politics as polarized. But the common ground is really quite extensive on this issue. We have a policy originated here in California. It's been replicated elsewhere called extreme risk protection orders, um, which we might talk about. But I, I want to just mention this about them. We, we did some survey research here in California on awareness of and support for, for that policy. And in the research project, we described what the policy was because it turned out people really didn't know about it and gave some examples of how it might be used and then asked people, so is this a reasonable thing to do? And not only was there very high levels of support for using the policy when it was appropriate, support was higher among gun owners than non-owners mm -hmm. for taking guns away from people when it's appropriate. It's, you know, it's really interesting that you, you say that because I'm aware of the, the general, you know, Gallup surveys and Pew research surveys, uh, that, that, that you see out there, but, um, just anecdotally. And again, I, I don't know that this is true, but you, you're saying that it is, but anecdotally, when I talk to people who are just, um, you know, fervent second amendment supporters and, and own a lot of guns, this is one of those issues that they don't give you a lot of pushback on. They know that they're not going to break the law. They know they don't have their guns to kill people and they want responsible ownership. Right. And it's, it's, in, I always think you're going to get pushback, but you don't. I tend to get more support among those people. <laughs> I, I grew up with firearms um, and, and I'm comfortable with them. I'm comfortable with gun people as long as the guns are not part of the equation right here immediately. Um, but people who, 
own and use guns responsibly, I think have a legitimate reason to be concerned about what I'll call guilt. It's not a train, I promise. Um, <laughs> it's probably the lunch wagon for the crew outside. Gotcha. <laughs> um, I, I think they have legitimate cause for concern that their access to and use of firearms will sort of be caught up in guilt by association mm. because there are the knuckleheads out there who are acquiring guns for criminal purposes, who are acquiring guns because they want to commit political violence, because they want to overthrow the government. Let's not deny that those people are out there. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we need to do with our gun policies is to the absolute greatest extent possible, focus those policies on the people who need them, the, the people who are at risk of doing violence, whether it's violence to themselves or or violence to someone else. I'll give you an anecdote. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with um, the extreme risk protection order, recovering guns from people at a moment of crisis. The best single articulation of the motivation that, and the essence, motivation behind an essence of that policy that I've ever heard or read came from a gun dealer who voluntarily took for safekeeping guns from people in his community at times of crisis. There was a system arranged for this. And he, he described it as, Bob, how about I babysit your guns for a while? Yeah, I like that. <laughs> and, and that's what it's, that's what that particular policy is about. Not destroy, no. right. So, yeah, I used to talk about the terminology. Um, I've always used recover, um, to recover, which is a law enforcement term. Um, but I've encountered people who say, let's, um, confiscate. Are you kidding? Hair on the back of my neck goes up too. Um, or let's dispossess. You've got to be kidding me. That's what a heartless <laughs> landlord does. You know? or, or, or the I'm the repo is, man. That's right. Yes, exactly. Or, or, or another one is surrender. We're going to make them mm. surrender their firearms. Is it, are you kidding me? So, uh, so extreme risk protection orders, uh, how would they work? Just give us a brief, brief synopsis of how that policy would work. And then also tell us like you did with the previous with background checks, um, you know, what does the evidence tell us about how impactful those policies are? Sure. So they, they, um, they're in effect. There are 19 states in the district of Columbia where these exist. There are minor variations on a theme, but the theme is this. There is a crisis, um, threats of harm to self, harm to others, threats to commit a mass shooting. Uh, guns are part of the equation. Somebody, typically a member of the public, becomes aware of that information. And in a state where these are, where this policy exists, that person themselves can go to a judge or, and this is almost always what happens, that person can, if they, they they've seen something, can now say something contact law enforcement and law enforcement can go to a judge. And before a judge, um, the process is a case needs to be made. Your honor, there's a crisis. Guns are part of the crisis. Due process is involved at every step of the way. This might be a three in the morning emergency. And so there's a cop on the scene who gets a judge up out of bed and there's a recorded court reporter conversation in an emergency at three in the morning, that's due process. Um, during the day, as with domestic violence, a petition gets filed. It is looked at by a judge in chambers, but it's an emergency. We need to do something. If the judge agrees that a restraining order is uh, necessary and issues one, the moment that order becomes active, when it's served on the person, that person is prohibited from owning or having access to or purchasing firearms or ammunition. So uh, firearms and ammunition are recovered, including if I'm the person at risk and it's my brother, I live with my brother and they're his guns and they're not locked up, those guns go too because I have access. Um, but the, the whole point is to get the guns out of the crisis situation. Those orders can last for no more than three weeks. There hasn't been a hearing. There has been due process. If the crisis continues and there's going to be a longer term order, there has to be a hearing. The person who's respond, the respondent to the order has to have the opportunity to make the case judge this is bogus or the, the crisis has passed. 
Um, filing a petition under false pretenses, at least in California, is a crime. You can be prosecuted for it. It's a misdemeanor. And on, on efficacy, it's a relatively new policy. So we don't have really good data, but we have these two data points, if you will. There have been studies done in Connecticut and Indiana where a similar policy was in, has been in effect longer, suggesting that when the orders are issued for suicide, a death is prevented for every 10 to 20 orders issued. Now, let me speak again as a clinician. We call that number needed to treat. How many people do you need to treat in order to have a benefit? And if somebody came to me and said, I've got a new clinical intervention for you, and you will save a life, the outcome here is mortality, every 10 to 20 times you use it, I'll say, are you kidding me? Sign me up. That is a really effective intervention with the, the hardest of hard outcomes under study. <clears throat> the other uh, outcome for which we have um, some, some data, but they're preliminary, um, are, here, are, are mass shootings. Here in California, we have now 59 cases in which a, a gun violence restraining order, as they're called in California, was used in an effort to prevent a, a, a mass shooting. And in zero of those 59 cases did a mass shooting or homicide or suicide occur, to the best of our knowledge, based on follow-up surveillance. We're absolutely sure about mass shootings. Somebody might have committed a homicide and not been arrested for it. We don't know. Right. But for mass shootings, we are, we are solid that it didn't happen. Can I prove that the order prevented the mass shooting in those 59 cases? No, because I don't have a comparison group of people in whom we said, ah, oh, let's just let them go ahead and carry out their threats and see, just see what happens. But zero for 59 is pretty good. I'm going to give you an anecdote. This is a real case. A disgruntled former employee makes a credible threat to come to his workplace and kill his coworkers. He also says he's going to buy a gun with which to commit that, uh, that mass shooting. The threatened coworkers notify company security. Company security notifies local law enforcement, which doesn't respond. Company security notifies our state justice department, but some time has passed. The justice department gets notification. We have a 10 day waiting period in California. The justice department gets notification of this with less than 48 hours to run in that 10 day waiting period. So they quickly jump on the case, determine that indeed, there's no record of this man owning firearms. We have such records in California, but there is a record of a purchase in process. When he said he made the threat, when he made the threat and said he was going to buy a gun, he bought, but he hasn't had yet taken possession, a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun. So they rush to the judge. They get the order. They call the dealer. Don't you release that firearm? And they contact the man, serve the order, and search his house. No guns, but 400 rounds of ammunition for that Mossberg 12. Wow. Now, that's an anecdote, but that's a good story. And we have 58 more of those. They don't all involve blocked purchases. They involve recovered firearms, et cetera. But I don't have a randomized trial to prove it. But the next time somebody threatens a mass shooting in my hearing, I'm going to pick up the phone and initiate the process to get a GVRO for that person. We are talking to Garen Wintemute. He's the director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at the University of California, Davis. He's a renowned expert on gun violence and a pioneer in the field of injury epidemiology and prevention of firearm violence. All right, Garen, so just to summarize so far, you would say that the evidence on background checks is pretty solid and the evidence on extreme protective orders, while promising, is preliminary and more needs to be done. Is that right? So let's talk. So let's talk more about background checks. Um, the 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 formal research on on background checks, uh, comprehensive or universal background checks, mm -hmm. is mixed. But here's the problem. Here are the problems. 
Number one, almost all of those studies are done at the population level. Right. And it makes a lot, but we, cause you can do those back to a theme from earlier. You can do those studies for not very much money because you don't have to collect data. To do a high quality evaluation, you need individual level data. You have to collect those data that costs money, which points to the importance of, of, of not allowing funding for research. You just make some kinds of research impossible. But, but that aside, the other problem is that background checks are only as good as the data they're run on. Mm-hmm. And although it's less a problem now than it was, Many of the studies done evaluating background checks, including studies by us that came to a finding of no substantial effect, used data from early in the existence of the policy when background check data was were notoriously incomplete because prohibiting events weren't reported. And if it's not in the data, the background check will miss it. Here's, here's the problem. There's a nest of problems here. Reporting prohibiting events to the federal databases that are used for background checks is voluntary. Mm-hmm. There's a Supreme Court decision saying that the federal government cannot mandate state agencies to report the data. So reporting has not been very good. Reporting has been terrible even by federal agencies. And this is now well documented where it's required. They didn't do it anyway. And there have been crimes, including the mass shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas, that happened. It's, it's quite clear. There's consensus on this. Because the Air Force did not report a prohibiting event, the shooter in that event cleared a background check, got the guns that he used in the shooting. And I won't dive further down that rabbit hole unless you ask me. But, but it's also the case that at this point, the preponderance of the evidence suggests that background checks are policies are most likely to be effective if a comprehensive background check policy is coupled with a permit policy. You have to go through a background check and you have to get a permit, um, which raises the bar some, um, but which also comes with difficulties because it's also clear or or there's deep concern, I should say this point, that the discretion that goes into the permitting process is probably abused. So we're stuck in a, in a pretty difficult spot where we have a policy that is poorly designed and poorly implemented and has unintended effects and has not yet been rigorously enough evaluated. If I can, I will say that all of those difficulties held in my hands. I, I believe that on balance, the evidence is the comprehensive background checks and permitting prevent violence. To your point earlier, the, the study you mentioned, the observational study, you were talking about a 25% reduction. Um, that seems worthwhile. Again, in a vacuum, right, where everybody follows the rules and the permitting exists and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, assuming we could get that on some large scale, that seems like a worthwhile reduction. It does. It does to me, too. All right. So, uh, and you sent me a bunch of uh, of policies to talk about, but if you had to think about uh, of all the policies you're aware of that have good evidence, what's one of the of the policies that we could implement or strengthen or implement in more states? You know, I'm, I'm not sure what the depends on what you say here, right? Um, but what's the policy that would have the biggest impact? Do you think? I mean, we have red flag laws, we have waiting periods, background checks, we've got all these different types of laws. What's the one we can get the most bang for? Well, that's a, that's a poor way to put it, but what's the one that we can get the most return on our, our policy? Yeah. Um, I, I don't answer that question in the way people expect. It's a question I get a lot. What's the one thing? Um, it's, it's sort of a trick question, but it sets up a, a, a valuable point. And that is this. Think th- violence is a complex health and social problem. Um, we're talking both interpersonal violence and self-directed violence. Most, most, most gun deaths in the United States are suicides. Um, it's worth remembering that beginning at about age 35 or so, first a plurality and then a majority of the people who die from gun violence in the United States are white, non-Hispanic men. Everybody thinks violence, young men of color. Mm-mm, not the case. 
Um, but <clears throat> so different types of violence, different demographics, different motivations, um, and adaptive behavior. The, if I really want to commit violence and you put one barrier in my way, I will find a way around that barrier. COVID is the perfect example. So the one right thing to do for this, as for COVID, um, is a lot of different things at the same time. So I don't advocate any one single policy. Because just as you and I talked about geographic undermining, um, strong policy in, in one place, mm -hmm. undermined by weak policies in other places, I, I'm going to invent a term here. There is such a thing as policy undermining, that a strong single policy can be undermined by weak policies around it, which mm -hmm. allow the system to adapt. So, so I try to make the case for we need comprehensive background checks and we need better data for those checks to be run on. Um, we need policies like gun violence restraining orders. We need to expand denial criteria. Um, you and I haven't talked about assault type weapons. We can have that conversation if you want. Um, we need to know more about the effects of all of these um, policies. And, and but the point is we need to commit ourselves to doing a bunch of things at the same time. And just to be clear for our listeners, when I say red flag laws, I'm using a non-technical term. Uh, the actual term is the one that our guest has used, which is extreme risk protection orders, right? So like gun control, red flag law is a term that I don't use. Um, that, that term was, was um, an advocacy group uh, got, had some marketing research done, which descriptor for that policy would generate the most response in the public. Red flag law turned out to be the descriptor, so they use it. Um, and it's really catchy, but it's problematic in a bunch of ways. So that's the kind of thing where, uh, like you mentioned before, like you could identify a person as being high risk, prevent sales, and also uh, for you know, suspend their possession of uh, firearms for a period of time. Right. Go out and, yeah. and recover the guns and, right. and take them right. for safekeeping. Okay, great. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, let's talk about um, uh, assault rifles because that's one of the common questions you see uh, from Gallup and a variety of other polling agencies. Um, you know, what does the evidence say about um, different policies around this? I'm especially interested in hearing you talk about, you know, should we go after the manufacturing of it and just make it illegal to manufacture them in the first place? But I also want to hear about things like, you know, maybe having small, like a, a limit to the, the amount of bullets that can be in a magazine and those sorts of things. So tell us about assault rifle research and uh, what's important to know about it. Sure. So um, let's do some terminology first. I'm going to call them assault weapons just because to be technically correct takes too long. I am, I am aware of and, and endorse the, the point of view that really an assault weapon is a military weapon that um, has selective automatic or semi-automatic firing capabilities. Those are not available on the general civilian market. Um, they're not the problem. Um, but I don't say rifle because there are assault type handguns also that are about 15 inches long or so. You can conceal them. Um, but just for the sake of verbal economy, let's just talk about assault weapons. So they are the latest example of technology being developed for the military and then migrating into the civilian market. That's, that's how gun development happened, basically. Um, so the, the point of an assault weapon from the military point of view is it allows you to substitute rate of fire for marksmanship. There was a problem in the militaries of the world that people weren't very good shots. The, the National Rifle Association was established to teach people to be good shots, not to defend the Second Amendment. Um, but if you could put substantial firepower in one person's hands, they didn't have to be a good shot. They just had to put a lot of lead downrange. So firearms are a tool. The tool gets used for the purposes for which it was designed. So here's what happens. Assault weapons enter the civilian market decades ago. People see the potential. And in the late 80s and early 90s, there were bans placed on the sale of these weapons. And I'm over oversimplifying just to save some time. 
California still has its ban in place, although it's been modified. The federal ban, uh, the legislative ban lasted for 10 years and then expired. The federal ban was evaluated, but here's, here was the difficulty that the evaluators ran into. The ban was put in place when violence with assault type weapons was really quite uncommon. And it's difficult to show a reduction in the incidence of an event that is rare to begin with. So standard social science population level research designs did not show a statistically significant decrease in the incidence of those rare events with the ban. Other research designs might have come to different outcomes, but the data could not have been collected for those research designs. It's moot and it's behind us. So federal ban expires. Um, and what we're seeing is an increased prevalence in the use of not just assault type weapons, the ones that have the design configuration that we can all see in our head, um, but weapons that use high capacity magazines, whether those are assault type or conventional, conventionally appearing firearms. <clears throat> and here we are. We do see, where we do see assault type weapons showing up disproportionately, um, and certainly uh, weapons that can accept high capacity magazines showing up disproportionately is in mass shootings, mm -hmm. which makes perfect sense. If my intent is to kill a bunch of people, I'm going to pick up the tool designed for that purpose, which is as why quickly as up. possible before yeah. the cops arrive. Right. Yeah. I, if I'm going to do a mass shooting, I'm not going to show up with two revolvers. I'm, yeah. I'm going to show up with something that will accept a 30 round magazine and I can drop it and replace it in the time it took me to snap my fingers. Um, so magazine capacity, which you mentioned at the time of the assault weapon ban in the nineties, there were millions, maybe tens of millions of high capacity magazines in circulation in the United States. There was a ban, um, but it grandfathered. It, it said it's, it's okay to continue to, actually I couldn't make anymore, but companies could import magazines that had been manufactured before the ban went into effect. So what happened is companies overseas continued to manufacture backdated the date stamp and continued to import. And um, there are tens of millions at a minimum, nobody knows really how many, um, of high capacity magazines in circulation in the United States. So the horse is out of the barn. Um, the question now is <clears throat> for assault type weapons, what do we do when there are millions of them in circulation and tens of millions of magazines if I can generalize, what do we do as a country when there are more than 400 million firearms in civilian hands? We have more guns yeah, than we I see, have I've seen that number. It's crazy. Yeah. That's based on survey research. There is, there is no enumeration. Nobody can count gun owners, but you can ask people and they'll tell you and you can extrapolate up from, from a reasonable survey sample. Um, so now we have to consider if we're going to ban assault weapons, ban high capacity magazines, will that have an effect going, a beneficial effect going forward? My guess is yes, but I don't know that. Could um, also be a lag, right? Like people could lose well, patience before it actually matters. So that always happens. Right. Um, is, is that, um, let's say there's, there's both a lag um, and there's anticipatory buying. You know, let's say we adopt a statute that's going to take effect in January. Assault weapon sales will go through the roof between now right. and January. Yeah. And, and that's, that's known to happen. Um, but there's one sort of interesting tidbit about this. I don't think this ever got published except in the Washington Post. I, I helped the reporter. He had data on the kinds of magazines that were recovered from weapons used in crime by the Virginia State Police. He just happened to have those data. And what he saw was during the time of the federal ban, federal ban high capacity magazines were decreasing in frequency among weapons recovered by the Virginia State Police. Within a couple months of the ban expiring, they took off again. That's 16 years ago. And we, to my knowledge, there are no comparable data from anywhere. But I think our general experience is that's what we're now seeing is 
the increasing prevalence, whether for legitimate use or criminal use, of weapons that accept high-capacity magazines. So the other problem we run into that you talked about before is what do we do about all, all the high-capacity magazines that are um, in the possession of responsible gun owners? Those high-capacity magazines, I would argue, are at low risk of being used for crime. Suicide right. is something else again. Right. Um, but is there a way to uncouple responsible and irresponsible ownership of high-capacity magazines? I don't have an answer to that question. So not a clear answer research-wise as to whether banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines would have a, a noticeable impact on mass shootings. So the answer to that question is, uh, yeah, yes, I agree with that statement. Okay. Um, the, we, here's what we know. Mass shootings have increased in frequency. There's, it doesn't matter how you define them. Um, they've increased in frequency. That's, that's quite clear. Assault-type weapons, weapons that accept high-capacity magazines, those are two different things, are overrepresented in public mass shootings. And we've talked about why that is. It makes sense that they are overrepresented. Would making those weapons harder to, to acquire reduce the incidence of mass shootings? Don't know. Is there, is there, do you have a good, we've, you've talked a lot about different policies, right? And, and so we're trying to, it's much like, you know, I, I heard an epidemiologist say this one time and I just never forgot it because I thought it was so great. He said, you know, um, you take a Tylenol and your headache goes away. That doesn't mean that the absence of Tylenol caused the headache, right? Like you're treating a symptom. And so we're talking about treating the symptoms of a violent country, at least violent in comparison to other wealthy countries. So do you have a, have a sense as to why we are unique among OECD countries, among wealthy countries, however you want to measure that, why we're unique compared to those countries? But, you know, um, maybe maybe it's gun laws, maybe it's not, maybe it's something else. What's, what's your sense of that? Yeah, I, I am. I am. Um, this is an audio broadcast, so the listeners can't see how I started grinning from ear to ear when you when you when you um, gave me that question. Here's the answer. <clears throat> Our rates of assaultive violence are run-of-the-mill for OECD countries. We are not a uniquely violent people. What is exceptional, a word I choose advisedly, what is exceptional is our rate of fatal violence. Uh, and I would, I would postulate that this is because we have unique, a unique level of access to a technology that changes the outcome. Interesting. Very interesting. So if you and I in some other country really hate each other's guts and we decide to get in a fight, you're going to win because you're a lot bigger than I am. But, but, <laughs> but we're going we're, we're gonna to fight. You know, somebody might get injured. But here, there's a good chance that one of us is going to pull a firearm out. And and the other one might have one too, and it changes the outcome. So, in the grand scheme of things, you know, your your, um, your sort of hunches that access really matters, pinning it down, studying it, talk about scientific rigor is one thing, but you know, the preponderance of the evidence, sort of looking bird's eye view, you say there, there's something really is something about the access to lethal force that matters. Yes. So, preamble. Um, I'm a scientist. I understand that truth is a direction. It's not a destination. It is not a fixed quantity. But there are 50 years of research at the individual level, at the population level, cross-sectionally, over time, um, within countries, across countries. Prevalence of ownership makes a huge difference. Um, I'll give you a, another individual level example. It's from California. I pick it because it's one more example of the kind of research that cannot be done for free. A colleague led a group, I'm part of the group, that is looking at the question, what's the risk of violence associated with bringing a first firearm into the home? So from zero lethal means, unless you're going to count knives, but they're not the same, to a firearm in the home for the for the owner for the new owner of firearms 
suicide risk early on goes up by a factor of 100, by 10,000%. And that's in a controlled observational study with adjustment for age, age, race, sex, and if I recall correctly, socioeconomic status. It goes down over time, but it never comes close to the level that is seen for people who have no guns in the home. And the risk is not limited to the owner. Risk of death goes up in those identified households, goes up for the other people who live there. Risk of homicide for the other people who live there go up. Risk of suicide for women who do not own the guns themselves, but live in a home where a gun was introduced goes up. In all cases, by very substantial margins. So that's at the individual level. Um, and, but we have comparable studies. It doesn't even take a study. You can, you can spend an hour gathering data for free at CDC's um, injury surveillance website and just, just look at prevalence of firearm ownership by state, which you can get from survey research and plot that against firearm homicide and suicide rates. The places in the United States where these rates are lowest are on the Pacific coast and in New England, where rates of firearm ownership are the lowest. Can I prove a causal relationship based on just that statement? No, of course not. But I've got 50 years worth of evidence backing it up. I don't have a randomized trial. The randomized trial would be, let's do this. Let's artificially, let's take the 50 states and let's separate them uh, by randomization into two groups of 25. And let's double the prevalence of firearm ownership in 25 states and hold it constant in the others and see what happens. That's not an experiment that's ever going to be conducted. But we do have, we do have some natural experiments. We do know that after, let's say, and I'm back to that 50 years of evidence. Let's say after a mass shooting, there's a spike in gun purchasing after a mass shooting. And you can show that that spike is related to, to an increase in violence down the road. Early in the coronavirus pandemic, there was a spike in purchasing right across the country. And we showed at the state level that the size of the spike was related to the size of the increase in violence that followed. And let me point us forward for just a minute. We started studying that increase in purchasing in the United States in the spring of 2020, because we saw it happening as the pandemic was, was developing and we understood high to the dog. Um, and we understood um, what might be coming. Now, in the summer of 2022, it's not a spike. It's a sustained surge. We're in the middle of an absolutely unprecedented increase in gun purchasing over predictive levels based on historical data that shows no sign of abating. I have, I have data through the end of July. So now the question looking forward is this given what we know about the prevalence of ownership and sudden increases in the prevalence of ownership, we are conducting a huge national experiment right now. It's going to answer this question. What happens when you take a society that is increasingly concerned about and fearful for its own stability in the future, increasingly mistrustful of others, increasingly angry at itself with elections that are seen as determining the future of the country on the, on the near horizon. What happens when you take such a country and massively increase its prevalence of firearm ownership, which is what we have already done? We have no choice but to live through the answer to that question. So uh, real quick before we, we wrap up, uh, you know, it, this is incredibly uh, complicated research. It doesn't point to a liberal or a conservative uh, answer. It's, uh, it's contingent. There needs more work to be done. I mean, it's, it's complicated, right? It's nuanced. Um, but, but when you, what are some of the things that you hear? Let's start with liberal politicians, then we'll go to conservative politicians. What are some of the things you hear liberal politicians uh, simplify this debate in a way that makes you just kind of throw up your hands and say, you're not, you're not helping the cause? <laughs> so my gripes with, with, with liberal people, not just politicians, 
is that they haven't done their homework. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't understand guns as a product, even at a basic level. And I think, I, I think you have to do your homework to speak with authority and credibility. Um, they haven't reviewed the research. Uh, they are, are out of touch with the rest of the country and don't understand how the rest of the country thinks. And, and for those reasons, they contemplate interventions that have no chance of successful implementation in the United States. Um, I continue to encounter people who say, let's do what Australia did. Australia had a buyback and it worked. Um, well, yeah, but they confiscated, um, and this was confiscation, um, an entire class of weapons. It's only called a buyback because people got paid for their property. It was not voluntary. Are you telling me that you're seriously advocating the involuntary confiscation of semi-automatic firearms in the United States? That's, that's a laugh line. Um, so, so that, that's my gripe. And, and also, I, I'll end with this gripe list. We've got with this gripe that measures that really have a chance of adoption and implementation because they're often not sweeping enough in and of themselves aren't of interest to people who are in a position to, to, to make a difference. But there are plenty of exceptions. I, I, I want to make this point very clear. And uh, we'll wrap up with this one. Uh, things that conservative politicians or conservative people say about guns and gun control that you think, gosh, you know, you're not helping either. So to be honest, many of the same points, um, a lot of them don't do their, their homework. There, there is an, an anti-science bent to public conservatism right now that concerns me on many grounds. Um, this will seem like a non sequitur. Um, in the spring, I started telling colleagues, we're going to see polio in the United States in, in the summer. They thought I was out of my mind. It's here. Um, there is a turning away from science among not all conservatives, but enough to matter at the population level that I think bodes ill for the country in, in many, many ways. Climate change is probably the, the biggest of them. So don't do their homework. Um, don't understand the other side. It's sort of the same list. And to, to both of them, my, my largest uh, gripe, since we're griping, is look at the middle. Do you understand that each of you is the two and a half percent at the, ex- right. the extremes of the de- of the, st- the, the t- statistical distribution and that 95 percent of the country pretty much is of a piece on policies, many of the policies that you and I have been discussing? Let's get it done. I know. It's so disconcerting. Garen went to mute. This has been a great conversation. I wish I, I could have more of these where we just, like you said, set the <laughs> politics aside and just say, let the data fall where it may, right? So, uh, Garen went to mute. Thank you so much for joining the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've, I've had a great time too. Um, and if you want to pick up where we left off, anytime. Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org and be sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter while you are there. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet
happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.